The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank all of you who are listening to me on David Duke's show. It is Thursday, so of course it's time for the weekly visit of another dear friend of mine, Dr Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, today we've got an interesting one for you because uh, Peter does a lot of excellent book reviews on here. But the book he's reviewing today, I've actually had the author on to do a show on uh, some years ago. Uh, and I will get in touch with him again. I think I'll probably send this uh, this file to him uh, in case he finds it interesting. The title of the show is The Real Story Behind the Bad War by M.S. King. So, uh, Peter, where would you like to start us off with uh, this one today? Andrew, I've read a lot of books on World War II, and this book, The Bad War, The Truth Never Taught About World War II by M.S. King, is one of the clearest, most concise and comprehensive I've ever come across. If there was just one book that a person wants to read on World War II to try and undo the decades of disinformation, outright lies, myths, legends, fabrications, Hollywood's based on a true story inspired by true events, only the names and the place have been uh, preserved, but the facts have been changed to protect the guilty and to demonize the victims. You know, that kind of uh, nonsense out there. This is this is one book that is simple, straightforward, readable, accessible. It's over 200 pages, but it's large format, and it's well illustrated. There's illustrations on virtually every page, multiple illustrations, both documenting and illustrating what he's talking about. And I must say, in some ways, I look at it and think, this is a book I would have liked to have written. Um, in fact, there's a huge amount of his observations that tie in with what my research has found out. But he brings out more than I was aware of, too. It's, it's a great summary. And uh, just uh, looking at this, I must say, if a person wants to understand how we've been lied to and how this most cataclysmic event of the 20th century has affected everything. Uh, understand the bad war is important. Now, of course, why is the title a bad war? It's because so often the media keeps calling World War II the good war. Uh, and, well, <laughs> what was good about it? And it's extraordinary. That term originated basically from Hollywood characters, and it might be a good war from the perspective of the globalists and the banksters, 
And those people who like perversion and the destruction of Western civilization. But it was a bad war from everyone else's perspective. And uh, I certainly started to be schooled in this when I started my missionary work behind the Iron Curtain, smuggling behind the Iron Curtain and Checkpoint Charlie, Berlin Wall and all that, going everywhere from Poland in the north down to Romania, Bulgaria and Albania in the south and uh, all across Eastern Europe. I was horrified to discover that the people there didn't share the same view uh, in the 1980s that uh, I had been indoctrinated into, which was that the good guys saved civilization, the Second World War, and uh, we were on the side of the angels, and it was the good war, and we fought for freedom and Western Christian civilization and democracy and all of that sort of thing, which uh, my dad fought all six years of the Second World War in the Eighth Army, uh, mostly in North Africa, and uh, he was a little disenchanted with it. Uh, he said he couldn't believe that Britain wasted her time twice fighting for the French. He didn't see the whole uh, picture, but he certainly saw that something was wrong with the narrative. And uh, my father would be the kind of person who'd make comments off some American film saying it wasn't like that. And that's rubbish. And I never saw any atrocities, never heard of any atrocities. Uh, the Germans were honorable people. The Africa Corps were gentlemen, and uh, he would come out with comments like, I don't believe it. Uh, I don't believe any of it. And when we asked what he's talking about, he referred to the atrocity stories on TV. And, and I've met, of course, a lot of soldiers, airmen, seamen, others in the Moths Memorial Order of the Tin Hat and other veterans around the world. And I've even met people who were in the Red Army and uh, who fought in the Romanian Army and uh, a Polish Army and all over the place, uh, even up in Lithuania. So uh, I must say, I've heard from all sides different insights, which in my experience contradicted the official narrative, which you got from Hollywood and from the school textbooks and so on. Uh, but here, M.S. King has put in a single book, uh, The Bad War, a, a, a review, an overview, but an insightful overview that covers literally 100 years. It's in seven sections. It deals with the seeds of future wars from 1848 through to 1913. So it shows what led up to the First World War. Section two is World War One and the collapse of Russia, the Bolshevik Revolution. And then section three, nationalism versus globalism or nationalism versus internationalism, um, 1919 to 1933. Section four is the plot to destroy Germany from 1933 to 1939. Then World War II part one is section five that goes up to 1941. And in Section 6, World War II, Part 2, which is when the Americans came in, a lot of things changed. And uh, that goes from Pearl Harbor, 1941, through to the end, 1945. Section 7, the aftermath of World War II. So uh, it's it's a over 240-page uh, large format book. And uh, it's really incredible. It's been well put together. And I must say it's to get a single narrative that exposes the uh, propaganda that's been pounded into our minds generation by generation. This is very helpful because it was what happened in the Second World War that laid the foundations for the Cold War, for the Soviet and Red Chinese communist control of the whole of a uh, uh, massive part of Asia and Europe and uh, all the way through to the Warsaw Pact countries and the, the collapse of China. All of that was laid in the Second World War the United Nations, New World Order, uh, the decolonialization, which turned Africa into a free fire zone 
war zone. So all this came out of the Second World War. And it's, it's the the problems we're having today uh, all started in uh, World War Two, and uh, and particularly right now the catastrophic mess which is breaking down every foundation for civilization, for stability, for virtue, for culture. It uh, can all be traced back to World War II, the so-called Good War, which led to the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the ongoing wars in the Middle East, the financial schemes, the distress, the chaos, the devaluing of a currency by the IMF and the World Bank, and the turning of Africa from a paradise where people were safe from one side of Africa to the other uh, into a place filled with all kinds of genocides and intertribal warfare and butchery and terrorism and massacres. And uh, so to to understand what led to this and that reduced the stability of uh, pre-1914 with the chaos that has reigned uh, into the 20th century, it's, it's so important, in fact, uh, <laughs> as... Uh, M.S. King puts it so well that as a result of World War II, the globalists have reduced Europa into a rootless, cultureless, godless, genderless, alienated, infertile, pornographic, multicultural, homosexual mishmash of mentally medicated tax and debt slaves. And how's that for a paragraph? Um, (laughs) And he he said that um, as individuals, we're no longer persons defined by virtues and intellects. We have become soulless machines, disposable, pill-popping, TV-addicted human resources and taxpayers defined solely by a net worth and ability to consume, a euphemism for going into debt to buy worthless rubbish that we don't even need. (laughs) So you can see where he's going here. And that while we may not be able to undo the evil folly of the past, but by correcting the misinformation associated with it, we can at least avoid more bloodsheds in the future. And we need to understand that uh, what they did to Europe and civilization back uh, in the 1930s and 40s is exactly what they're trying to do with what's left of Western Christian civilization now. And you can see it with how people are right now trying to pit Western Europe against Russia, uh, the new Russia, the the non-communist Russia of of Putin, and uh, trying to create a new World War III and it, uh, we need to understand where we've come from in order to be able to uh, build a better future. And certainly, uh, you just think biblically, we've got the warnings throughout the book of Revelation that this, that Satan is deceiving the whole world. And that the time will come when an angel will be sent to bind Satan that he might deceive the nations no more. Which, And this is repeated over and over in Revelation about Satan deceiving the nations. There is no doubt that nations are being deceived. So if we find ourselves in agreement with the world, and by the world, I mean Hollywood, the United Nations, uh, the Clinton News Network, the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation, Sly Magazine, the whole so-called mainstream, lamestream media. If you find yourself in agreement with the world system, then you've obviously been deceived and are being deceived. And so uh, this uh, investigative journalist and researcher, M.S. King, based in New York City, uh, he has come to understand as someone involved in, uh, he was involved in marketing and advertising for 30 years. So he came to understand that public opinion is scientifically manufactured. And then he couldn't help but notice what was going on with how much the so-called good war propaganda was shaping the destruction of Western Christian civilization today. He 
begins a book out by quoting from Edward Gibbon, the English historian, from Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, history is indeed little more than a register of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. And he has certainly done that here. A good journalist must ask the five W's and an H. Who? What? Where? When? Where? And, most important, why? Of course, there's also the H, the how. Uh, so he dealt, deals with the who, what, where, how, when, and most importantly, the why of World War II. It's a real tour de force. It's an easy to understand, illustrated series of mini essays. It's a perfect reference guide to help us navigate our way through the sea of lies that have been fed to us since childhood and continues to be fed to us daily. Well, if we still plug into the mainstream, lamestream media or send our poor kids to government indoctrination gulags where they have to regurgitate this garbage and propaganda. I was fortunate that my first history teacher in high school in Rhodesia, Mr. Reese Davies, whose father had reason to understand how this worked because he was a member of parliament in Great Britain during the Second World War and one of the thousands detained without trial under the security legislation of Churchill, which included lords, admirals, generals, members of parliament, members of the House of Lords, uh, just detained without trial, over 5,000 uh, British people detained under Winston Churchill for either opposing the war or for exposing some lies or for uh, advocating acceptance of some peace uh, offers such as that of Rudolf Hess and so on. So um, very interesting that my first history teacher, Mr. Rhys Davies, whose father had been detained under this legislation before, he said to us, Beware the victor's version. Peacetime textbooks often just reflect wartime propaganda and uh, that we must think outside the box and we mustn't allow ourselves uh, to accept the lies. And, and then he made an interesting point, which um, I could never forget. He said, you know that England is lying about us in Rhodesia now. And indeed, they were. <laughs> you know, Rhodesia was being sanctioned and boycotted and bullied and... Uh, uh, Britain was even aiding the terrorists and initially arming them who were coming. And when they first came across the border, they weren't coming across with AK-47s and SKS uh, from weapons from the Soviet Union. The first terrorist attacks in Rhodesia were with Mills grenades, uh, uh, Thompson machine guns and Lee Enfields, uh, because um, Britain was supplying these terrorists through Zambia, uh, who had just gotten independence from Britain. And so uh, right from the beginning, uh, Britain was on the other side, and of course, the betrayal of Rhodesia, um, as Ian Smith documented in his book, The Great Betrayal, we were never beaten by our enemies, we were betrayed by our friends. So there's a lot I could understand, and having uh, fought uh, with honorable people in the South African uh, Defense Force against communist terrorists in Angola and Southwest Africa and Namibia, and having uh, seen how we've been lied about, um, I must say that I can understand how many of the people who fought against communism as part of the great Operation Barbarossa crusade against Marxism in the Second World War feel uh, and felt because uh, we saw our honorable intentions and, and honorable record in the field where we fought against communism and terrorism and treated captured enemy nobly and honorably and never harmed civilians and uh, after seeing the painstaking attempts we made to fight an honorable defensive war against communist terrorism, how we've been distorted and lied about and, and demonized by Hollywood and textbooks so that many people 
uh, uh, now look down this and, and assume that that uh, South Africans and Rhodesians who fought communism were guilty of something evil. Um, I understand how many of the people, whether in Finland or Romania or Germany or any of the volunteers that came from Norway and uh, all over Europe actually to fight against the Soviet tyranny, uh, such as the Russian Liberation Army and the Ukrainian Liberation Army and the Lithuanian Liberation Army, how they've been demonized or even ignored over the momentous sacrifices of fighting against communism, trying to save Europe from the Red Terror. And uh, and now the mainstream media and the textbooks and the schools lie about them. So this is what MS King seeks to rectify in the bad war, the truth never told about World War II. He starts off in 1848. Well, what happened in 1848? What's that got to do with the Second World War? Well, a lot. Um, uh, nearly 100 years before the end of the Second World War, Karl Marx publishes the Communist Manifesto. And that's got everything to do with what we're talking about. And in fact, if one doesn't understand the communist agenda and Karl Marx and uh, what the Bolshevik Revolution did, then we cannot understand the Second World War. And so he starts right back in 1848 when Karl Marx produced the Communist Manifesto. And it's basically just an intellectual mask for the Rothschild family's globalist plan to enslave humanity under a new world order. And actually, Karl Marx's grandparents were actually related to the Rothschild family through marriage. And the communists were calling for heavy income taxes, a central bank with monopoly on credit, abolition of private uh, land ownership, abolition of inheritance by heavy inheritance tax, uh, taxing the dead, state control of education, compulsory education, where the, uh, where the state controls the teachers and the textbooks and the curriculum, and everyone must come to a state indoctrination gulag, uh, control of the means of agriculture, manufacturing, medicine, all of these communications all to be controlled under what Karl Marx called the dictatorship of the proletariat. And you may think, well, you know, surely Karl Marx hasn't succeeded in any of his agenda. Well, remember, amongst the different things Karl Marx was advocating was that the state must continue to uh, to increase taxation on a graded way to basically confiscate from the productive and give to the unproductive and to confiscate huge amounts of property by heavy property taxes. Taxation of land is, of course, forbidden the Bible, but through land taxation and taxation of inheritance, they were able to transfer ownership um, uh, pretty steadily from uh, the landowners into the hands of the state. And the fact that you've got compulsory state education, that, that's totally 1848. The fact that you've got taxation of inheritance, taxation even of pastors, churches, Christian institutions, uh, whereas that's, of course, forbidden in the Bible because they receive their, uh, tax, their uh, free will offerings from people who have already been taxed. So he starts with the Communist Manifesto and the fact that uh, a lot of Marxist goals which is promoting violence and class envy and hostility towards free markets, hostility to family, hostility towards Christian work ethic and business and tradition. Uh, all of these are propagated today by well-meaning idealists who fall for Marx's poisonous promises of a better world with security and prosperity promised for all. And these are useful idiots who today are known as liberals or progressives, and they are helping the Reds and the globalists greatly. And then, of course, in 1848, there were spontaneous revolutions. Fifty different states throughout Europe and South America suddenly had spontaneous communist revolutions, 1848. And 
And this was all mob rule, manipulated by the banking dynasties, the Rothschilds, the globalists, as you've documented in the synagogue of Satan. And these were all part of wrecking havoc, causing thousands of deaths, leading to political upheaval. And all of this uh, affected the whole of Europe and a lot of South America, but not Russia. Tsarist Russia was unaffected by this tumult of 1848 because they didn't have a Rothschild bank and uh, because they didn't have media controlled by the Rothschild. So you can see why uh, Russia was going to be a major target of the communists in the First World War. Uh, then 1865, Jewish Mongol Paul Reuter, who was born with the name Israel Bear uh, Josephat, uh, well, Reuter begins a Reuters telegram company, the world's first major news organization. And if you look at the five um, uh, culture-carrying, culture-transforming institutions that the Marxists identify for control, the first is education, the second is news media, third is entertainment industry, then you go to religious institutions, and finally political institutions. And so uh, the, gaining state control over education, of course, is key, but then gaining control of the news media was a major uh, important step for them to create this massive lie which people have been believing about the good war. And so uh, very soon Reuters is in 200 cities in 94 countries in the world in about 20 languages. And this creation of the Reuters media empire, which uh, were able to provide the first news scoops from abroad, such as Abraham Lincoln's assassination, they were able, able to uh, send this report around. And most newspapers wouldn't have a personal uh, reporter in uh, any given country and so on all over the place at all times. So they'd be dependent on what they could hear from others. And so Reuters made it easy to tailor make messages so that all media started to sound the same report and the same issues from the same perspective. So this was shaping public perspective. And this was, uh, and Reuters continues to vomit out as uh, uh, MS King says, pro-globalist, pro-Zionist propaganda. Then 1870, the Franco-Prussian War, very key. The French Empire of Napoleon III, nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, declared war on the German Kingdom of Prussia, and uh, Prussia was joined by the smaller German states as well, and they thrashed France, which was meant to be the world superpower uh, militarily at that stage, and uh, this was a shock to everyone. How did Prussia come up so powerfully to beat uh, the superpower of uh, Europe and a nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte at that? Um, and so January 1871, German states declared unity uh, in the Versailles Hall of Mirrors, no less, which has a connection with why the French chose the Versailles Hall of Mirrors to impose the ruinous, counterproductive, destructive Versailles Treaty upon Germany. Well, that's where they signed their, their um, surrender back in 1871, and that's where Germany uh, declared a unity where the Prussian king would become the emperor and the different German states would unite under uh, the Prussian banner and, and become the German empire. And so that was 1871. You've got a, another Marxist revolution going on in Paris at this time, the Paris Communards. And at this stage in 1871, the new German Reich granted citizenship rights to the Jews. And so for the first time in history anyway, uh, Jews were allowed citizenship in countries that they were not ethnically of. So at that stage, for example, even in Britain, which was controlled by the Rothschilds, 
uh, Jews could not become citizens of uh, Great Britain in uh, 1871. And uh, so this was quite amazing. And the, the British Prime Minister Disraeli had officially converted to Christianity so that he could be involved in British politics, because if he had remained a Jew, he could legally not have been Prime Minister of Great Britain in, in uh, the 1800s. Uh, so uh, by the end of the 1800s, uh, the Jewish people had really moved into control much of German commerce, universities, press, politics, art, and central banking. And uh, we know that uh, Bismarck, the political father of the German Reich, treated the Jews very well, and they prospered in Germany more than they could anywhere else because uh, the, the Germans were so uh, favorable and open to them. Well, unfortunately, uh, this didn't translate to gratitude because Frederick Cohen, a Jewish communist, uh, shot Bismarck while he was Prime Minister of Prussia in 1866, uh, failed to kill him. But then in 1874, another terrorist, uh, Edward Kuhlman, attempted to assassinate Chancellor Bismarck, uh, struck Bismarck in the hand. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm I and uh, Chancellor Bismarck were real peacemakers. They were uh, trying to uh, bring about peace in Europe. And of course, the New World Order couldn't allow that. And so they wanted these men dead. Um and uh, so they, they nearly killed Bismarck, who was trying to make peace. And one of the things Chancellor Bismarck negotiated was an agreement between the Austro-Hungarian Emperor, Franz Joseph, the Russian Tsar, Alexander II, and Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm I. And this was called the League of the Three Emperors, which had the purpose to serve as mutual defense against the growing red Marxist movements, which had menaced Europe with violence since 1848, to avoid war amongst one another, uh, and use any diplomacy to resolve differences between them, and to oppose the expansion of French and British empires and plots to threaten the internal order of their country. So this was a very much a defensive pro-European, central, southern, eastern European power base that really, uh, if that could have stayed together, it would have definitely protected Europe from the ruinous wars uh, which devastated in the 20th century. And at this time, Russia defeated the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, in 1877-1878 war. And uh, uh, in this situation, the uh, Russians managed to uh, gain significant control over uh, the Black Sea area and uh, liberated parts of what today are Armenia uh, and uh, parts of what today are Romania from the Turks. And so uh, that was a positive thing. And then there were two communist attempts to assassinate Kaiser Willem I, who was the great peacemaker of that time. And uh, uh, both of these, uh, you had like Emil Max Hoddle uh, shooting the emperor and his daughter, uh, but they they survived. And then three weeks later, another communist, Karl Nobeling, fired a gun at the emperor. The 82-year-old Kaiser was wounded but survived. And uh, uh, you could see a major war against the three emperors and the, the Christian monarchs who were trying to preserve Europe and to keep things safe. And so it's at this point that the English Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli started to play dirty tricks to undermine uh, and to bring a division between Russia and Germany. And sadly, he was able to break up the Three Emperors League through some real dastardly uh, political backstabbing which laid the foundations for the Great War, the First World War, 1914 to 1918. And so the globalist Zionist, Benjamin Disraeli, uh, came back to Queen Victoria and boasted how he had killed the Three Emperors League. And uh, 
at that point, that was followed by the Anglo-Egyptian War, where Rothschild's Britain uh, took the area for the Suez Canal and managed to control it and waged war uh, in uh, Egypt, uh, the, the host for the, uh, the canal. And so now they came in to control Egypt and, and to occupy Egypt, which then put them in reach of the Zionist Rothschild family's goal of gaining control of Palestine. They were right next door in Egypt. Well, at this point, 1887, uh, Bismarck negotiated another treaty to uh, heal the rift um, with Russia, uh, even though Russia and Austria had now been put at odds over the Balkan controversy. Uh, but now Germany and Russia signed a reinsurance treaty that uh, Germany and Russia would agree to remain neutral should either become involved in a war with the third nation and um, uh, the only exception would be if Russia attacked Germany's ally, Austria-Hungary, then, of course, that deal was off. But the reinsurance treaty was a good sign that Russia and Germany wanted to work together to avoid war. And then he points out in 1890, sadly, the new German Kaiser, Willem II, dismissed Bismarck and turned down Russia's offer to renew the reinsurance treaty, which was very short-sighted. And history would prove that Bismarck had been right and the young uh, Willem II was wrong in dropping the pilot uh, of peace in Europe, which was uh, uh, the Chancellor Bismarck. So at this point, 1894, Russia got entangled into a French-Russian alliance, which was dwarfly. I mean, remember, France had invaded Russia, the great 1812 uh, overture and uh, Napoleon getting to Moscow and all of that. Uh, and uh, if you've seen War and Peace or read the book by Leo Tolstoy, you know about that backdrop. So to have France, the historic enemy of Russia, now in an alliance with Russia was quite extraordinary. And this obviously meant to put Germany in a vice. Germany has no natural boundaries to protect it from the east or the west. Britain's got this massive canal, um, channel and ocean around it, and America's got oceans around it, and Switzerland's got its mountains, and some countries have a big... Uh, river dividing, but Germany doesn't. It's, most of the north is pretty flat, and um, there was no natural boundary between it and Russia or France. So suddenly having France and Russia allies with Germany as the obvious target, uh, this laid another foundation for the disastrous war. Well, in 1896, the Zionists purchased the New York Times, and the New York Times uh, coined the, it was taken over by a, uh, a Jew called Adolf Oakes, who coined the self-serving slogan of the press, all the news that's fit to print. Well, that would be nice. But um, uh, you can see how they've continued to use the New York Times to actually promote globalist agendas and to target whoever the Zionists hated. 1897, the first Zionist Congress met in Basel, Switzerland, with a plot to take uh, Palestine as a key goal. And they would need a European military power to... Uh, take Palestine away from the Ottomans by force. And this was already being planned in 1897, uh, with uh, Herzl being the long-range planner. And Bismarck, as he died in 1897, warned uh, that um, the crash could come uh, in about 20 years' time, if we're not careful, and it'll probably come, some European war will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. And that happened virtually to the year that he was predicting. Uh, at this point, 1898, America picks a war with Spain to become an empire 
and it manages through the yellow press uh, to uh, force upon President William McKinley this ridiculous war which was proven to be based on a false flag uh, where a U.S. battleship, the USS Maine, uh, just invited itself to Havana and then blew up in the Havana uh, harbor and blamed Spain for it. It's proven since it was an internal explosion, whether deliberate or not. Uh, the timing was extraordinary because the Americans were positioned to immediately wipe out the Spanish fleet in the Pacific and to annex Hawaii and the next Philippines and Guam, and America became a major empire. As a result of this 1898 war with Spain, which America picked on the basis of a false flag. And this also put them into a position where they could challenge Spain uh, and not just take Spain's place, but be a challenge to Japan in the Pacific. Well, April 1904, the Entente Cordiale, Britain and France formed an alliance, which now is looking very suspicious because up till now, Germany and Britain have been the best of friends going back for centuries the Thirty Years' War, the Seven Years' War, Germany uh, was always on the side of Britain. Battle of Waterloo, Germany was on the side of Britain against France. And, and now suddenly, it's not just France and Russia, but the British are in alliance against Germany. And this was very surprising. And now there's an attempted revolution in Russia, 1905, in order to uh, seize control of the communists. And this is financed by Rothschild and Schiff, uh, both major banksters and Although this Red Revolution in Russia was was suppressed, they did manage to kill something like 7,300 people and wound about 8,000 in this 1905 to 1909 Marxist attempt to seize control of Russia through uh, terrorism. Well, the Russian leaders, especially Tsar Nicholas, made a critical mistake here. Instead of executing the Marxist leaders like Lenin and Trotsky, they merely deported them. And so Lenin found his way to Switzerland and Trotsky ended up in New York. And these exiled communists would one day return with vast amounts of money from Zionist bankers to terrorize Christian Russia again. And so uh, that brings one to some forbidden history quotes. So the American ambassador to Russia, George von Longerk, said, the Jews have undoubtedly to a large extent furnished the brains and energy in the revolution throughout Russia. That's the quote on 1905 Marxist revolution in Russia. And so at this time, 1905, the Russian professor Sergei Nilis published the full version of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which had been discovered some years earlier, but now it's going into the mainstream. And the protocols are meant to be the minutes of a secret meeting of Jewish exiles in which a master plan for world domination is to be completed over the next hundred years. Well, some people may question uh, whether the protocols were forged by Russian security agents or to convince Tsar Nicholas II of the New World Order's existence and danger. Uh, but the question cannot be that there's anything uh, that's not accurate in it, because while some people question the origin, the protocols tells of a plan that we've seen carried out over the last hundred years. Destroy the Catholic Church and all Christianity. Promote atheism wage class warfare, turn labor against management, overthrow czarist Russia, corrupt the morals of the people, promote modern art and dirty literature, use anti-Semitism to keep lesser Jews cohesive, manipulate women with ideas of liberation, create economic depressions, inflations, create controlled opposition to themselves so they can 
control the opposition, use state debt as a weapon to enslave countries, subvert and control all existing governments, install tainted politicians who can be blackmailed and bribed, manipulated, manipulate college students with phony idealism, assassinate world leaders who are a problem or an obstacle, spread deadly diseases, use balance of power politics to control nations, commit acts of terrorism to keep people uncertain, promote sports and games as a diversion, start up a world war that will include the USA, and set up a world government after an economic crash. Now, that someone could have foreseen this in 1905, it just seems incredible, uh, to suggest that this is a forgery when this exactly describes what's happened over the last century, uh, it makes you question, how did anyone have such unusual knowledge and such spooky um, <laughs> premonitions of what was coming? But at this point, March the 25th, 1906, the New York Times publishes the false claim that six million Jews face extermination in Russia. This is 1906, and we see a recurring uh, six million propaganda coming from the New York Times and others in the Reuters and uh, uh, Zionist press, as M.S. King describes them. So the Triple Entente in 1907, the military alliance between Britain, France, and Russia concluded in 1907 is uh, a really ominous um, a warning of the coming world war because Britain, under the control of the Rothschilds, who control the, the money supply of Britain, they couldn't have been allying with Russia out of friendship because um, Russia's always been an historic enemy. The globalist elite were seeking to draw Russia into fighting Germany and Austria-Hungary from the east so Russia could be exhausted and then later taken over from within by communists um, who were controlled by the globalists. And so the Triple Entente um, were uh, on one side and so to counter it was the Triple Alliance or the central powers where Germany, Austria-Hungary and Italy managed to work together, but there were Rothschild agents at work in both bringing about the Triple Entente and the Triple Alliance. And Italy, of course, later switched sides and um, was replaced with the Ottoman Empire in the central powers. And these two alliances had actually been cleverly set up as mechanisms for the purpose of triggering a world war to rearrange Europe and to rearrange the world. And in one incident of assassination in the Balkan region of southern Austria would ignite the two alliance powder cakes and drag powers of Europe and later America into this massive war. I might add even dragging Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Rhodesia into the war. You know, we're pretty far away. But the New World Order and its agents had now manipulated the patriotic passions of various nations to bring about a disaster that could benefit globalism, internationalism, communism. And you can see how Germany and Austria were boxed in by the Triple Entente. They were going to face a war on two, probably three fronts. And uh, all that was needed now was a powder keg. And it's at this point that the New World Order um, uh, came to 1912, the need to establish a central bank in the United States, which was done in 1913 by Woodrow Wilson, impose an income tax in America so state debt to the central bank can be centralized and collateralized with human labor. You know, the, the loans and the interest are fake, but the, the repayments are real. Uh, trigger the long plan triple in time triple alliance war to reshape Europe, constructive chaos to quote Lenin, entangle America in the coming 
world war and then bring about a world organization to bring all governments together, League of Nations, finish off Russia and convert this Eurasian giant into a communist country, a red tyranny, establish a world political body under the pretext of world peace, that would be the League of Nations, and carry out Herzl's plan to steal Palestine from the Turks and the Arabs. And because they could see that President William Taft would not involve America in such a treasonous scheme, they recruited Woodrow Wilson, a Princeton professor, who was rocketed to governor of New, of New Jersey, then to Democratic nominee for president, and to steal Republican votes from Taft, they advocated a third-party candidate. And this divide-and-conquer trick worked, and so Woodrow Wilson won with just 41% of the vote. And, of course, the vast majority of people eligible to vote didn't register to vote or didn't turn out to vote. And so it was much less than 20% of the potential electorate who actually voted Woodrow Wilson in. But through manipulation, America managed to get a complete globalist puppet, Woodrow Wilson, who then came in, and he was the globalist dream. Uh, in came everything from the Federal Reserve Bank in America, which isn't federal, which isn't a bank, and has no reserves. It's complete fraud. Uh, but it put control in the hands of the banksters, I think we can call them, taking the word banker and banks and gangster together, Jacob Schiff, who had shared a home with the Rothschilds in the 1700s, the Schiffs who'd helped Japan defeat Russia in 1905, who'd funded the NAACP and the ADL, um, Bernard Baruch, who first introduced Woodrow Wilson to the wealthy Jewish community of New York City, and as one source said, Baruch led Wilson as you would lead your poodle on a string. And during World War One, Baruch would head up Wilson's War Industries Board, making him the most powerful figure in American industry. And then the Warburg brothers, the German banker. Paul Warburg would become the father of the U.S. Federal Reserve, a private banking stock manipulative syndicate which collected interest for the privilege of printing the nation's currency. And his son, James Warburg, would set up the World uh, United World Federalists in 1947 to openly promote world government. His other brother, Max Warburg, would be a, he has a powerful bank in Germany, and his other brother, Felix, a philanthropist, used his fortune to promote globalist and Zionist causes. And so these were all Zionists. And this, there's also Rabbi Stephen Wise, and there was Chaim Weizmann, and a whole lot of other uh, characters. Um, Alison Weir has written a book against our better judgment, revealing how these Zionists manipulated Wilson and America into the world war, uh, which derailed uh, the greatest century of advance and progress and peace, uh, the 19th century into the catastrophic totalitarian massacre ridden 20th century so that's section one <laughs> and uh, then he's already uh, with the uh, double murder which lit the Balkan fuse and uh, which it was a, a young Turk uh, one of the uh, a Bosnian a Serbian nationalist uh, who was an anarchist so basically a communist uh, who started the war by assassinating the heir to the Austrian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and his beautiful wife, Sophie, on their 10th wedding anniversary, while he was traveling in an open car through the Bosnian city of Sarajevo. And uh, first a bomb was thrown at the car, and uh, the Archduke just uh, deflected the bomb with his arm and it exploded behind him. Uh, they continued their tour, even seeing the people injured in hospital, but afterwards on the way back, uh, to the palace, they 
took a wrong turn into a side street where the, another assassin, Gavrilo Princip, spotted them, shot Sophie in the stomach and fronts Ferdinand in the neck. And uh, this was the beginning of the catastrophic, uh, hideous First World War. And all of this set in order to turn Christian Western nations against one another in order to pick up the pieces at the end and remold Europe in the way they wanted. This is basically a war against against nationalism and it was a war for globalism, although the, most of the people taking part wouldn't have understood that. This has been manipulated from behind. And so uh, to basically uh, the the uh, attacks on Germany in this was just phenomenal. The the demonizing of Germany in this war, and, and uh, we've done accounts on, on how the propaganda and the First World War, just beyond comprehension. Uh, so uh, we've got in the Bad War by M.S. King, uh, the manifesto of the 93, published in 1914, to counter the Allies' propaganda lies against Germany. And Willem Rotman, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, who had discovered x-rays is one of the uh, signatories. As representatives of German arts and science, we protest to the civilized world against the lies and calumnies with which our enemies are endeavoring to stain the honor of Germany in a hard struggle for existence, in a struggle that's been forced on her. The iron mouth of events has proved the untruth of the fictitious German defeats. Consequently, misrepresentation and calumny are all the more eagerly at work. As heralds of truth, we must raise our voice against these. It's not true that Germany is guilty of having caused the war. Neither the people, nor the government, nor the Kaiser wanted war. In fact, no one did more to try and prevent the war than Kaiser Wilhelm. It's not true that we trespassed in neutral Belgium. It's been proven that France and England had resolved on such a trespass. It's likewise been proved that Belgium had agreed to their armies passing across Belgium. So it would have been suicide on our part not to have preempted this attack on our homeland. It's not true that the life and property of even a single Belgian citizen was injured by soldiers without the bitterest defense having made it necessary. It's not true that our troops treated Levon brutally. Furious inhabitants having treacherously fallen upon our men in their quarters, in the rare areas, our troops with aching hearts were obliged to fire parts of the town. The greater part of Levon has been preserved. It's not true that our warfare pays no respect to international law. We know no undisciplined cruelty. In the East, the earth is saturated with the blood of women and children, mercilessly butchered by wild Russian troops. In the West, dum-dum bullets mutilate the breasts of our soldiers in violation of the Geneva Convention. It's not true that our combat against so-called militarism is not a combat against our civilization. Our enemies hypocritically pretend that we are militaristic, but were it not for the German military, our civilization would have long ago been exterminated. We cannot wrest the poisonous weapon, the lie, out of the hand of our enemies, but all we can do is proclaim to the world that our enemies are giving false witness against us. Have faith in us, believe that we shall carry on this war to the end as a civilized people to whom the legacy of Goth, Beethoven, and Kant is just as sacred as it is in our own hearths and homes. And so uh, here's a man who invented X-ray uh, who could see through the anti-German atrocity propaganda of the Allies. And again, December 1914, the New York Times reports on the plight of six million Jews who are 
uh, suffering in Europe and about to be wiped out. And please send money through to <laughs> Felix Warburg and you know, these massive uh, multi-billionaire uh, banksters and so on are trying to raise money from Americans under the Jewish the American Jewish Relief Committee to help the uh, people who are the six million Jews about to be exterminated in Russia uh, by the Tsar, I presume. And now there's attempts to set up bringing in um, America into the war on behalf of the uh, Allied cause. And Britain wanted to draw America into the war, and America wanted to be drawn into the war, or at least its government did. And so First Lord Admiralty Winston Churchill and Wilson's Marxist advisor Edward Mandelhaus believed that if Germany could be baited into sinking a British ship with Americans aboard, the American population could be forced into the war. And at this stage, 85% of Americans wanted to be isolationists, didn't want to be involved in any war in Europe, uh, which, of course, was the advice of uh, George Washington. He said, um, never get involved in Europe's wars, avoid any entangling alliances. Well, unbeknownst to the passengers of the Lusitania, the largest ship in the world at that time, luxury liner, it was actually carrying arms and explosives destined for Britain. And so the Lusitania is now known to have been loaded with 600 tons of explosive, 6 million rounds of ammunition, 1,200 cases of shrapnel cells, and about 100 American prisoners. The German embassy in Washington was aware of this and warned American travelers by placing ads in U.S. newspapers, including in New York, but many uh, newspapers refused their warning about the Lusitania being used as a military transport and that it was in fact part of the uh, Royal Navy's Merchant Marine and it had weapons on board and it even had concealed guns uh, on the deck, just under the deck, ready to be mounted. And all these different points warning the people, well, many American newspapers refused to carry this warning. Well, as the Lusitania approached Irish coast, First Lord Admiralty Winston Churchill ordered them to reduce speed and to change direction, bring it right in front of a German U-boat that, of course, couldn't possibly travel as fast uh, underwater as this massive, one of the fastest ships in the world, the Lusitania. And it had no chance catching it, except that the radio transmission was sent to send them directly across where uh, the one German U-boat in the whole Irish Sea was available. And uh, the captain unknowingly obeyed the instruction of Admiralty. And uh, this was sealed for over 70 years from the records. Now it's out that Lusitania was set up and the single German torpedo fire sent uh, uh, hit the munitions, which were stored all along the side of the ship. And it was a disaster. Within 18 minutes, the entire ship sunk. Now, the ship was was built to be unsinkable. And you could have had three of its sections, uh, because there were waterproof uh, uh, divisions uh, set uh, to prevent the ship sinking. Even if three torpedoes had hit the ship, it couldn't have sunk because it could carry on with three of the uh, sections flooded, but not with a fourth. And uh, and there was only one uh, torpedo sent. And the uh, German uh, U-boat who fired the torpedo had no expectation of stopping the ship, but merely slowing it down because this is one of the biggest ships in the world. And one torpedo couldn't do that much to it, especially with all of its uh, uh, separate uh, sections preventing the ship from being able to sink. But because it hit the explosives, the entire ship exploded and sank in 18 minutes, which 
was staggering to everyone with the loss of life of um, about 1,200 people, which is staggering. But, and that included about 100 Americans. And the Royal Navy did everything it could to cover this. And for 70 years, these uh, all the files and in, uh, the investigation into the secret Lusitania were sealed by the British uh, Secret Service. So uh, this made America more ready to come out of the uh, isolationism and be interested in war. And so the pressure that was being brought to bear at this time was huge uh, because at this time comes the um, Balfour Declaration and uh, all of the different uh, extraordinary things that brought America in the war and changed the world forever. But I think that's enough for this show. I think I must go on with the rest in next week because uh, we should discuss this. Uh, this is just laying the foundations and I'm only in section two of this seven section, uh, but laying the foundations for understanding the bad war. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, I mean, certainly we can do a series on this. I found the whole thing fascinating. I've, uh, I read the book many years ago. Uh, I believe I was involved in helping Mike get it um, up on another platform after it was taken down by Amazon. Um, and I was looking at my records and I was last in touch with Mike King back in 2017. So it's like four years ago. So I'm really going to touch base with him. I'll send this over. And um, I look forward to uh, recording part two and you can do as many uh, parts on this as you would like. It's uh, fascinating information. So folks, I want to firstly thank Peter for joining me again today for a show entitled The Real Story Behind the Bad War by MS King Part One. Peter and I'll be back with you at the same time next week for part two. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day, and bye for now.